are listening to Footprints on Our Hearts, a podcast about baby loss, legacy, and learning to live again with me, Alison Ingleby. The baby loss community is one that no one wants to join, but together we can break the silence around baby loss and help each other navigate the rocky road that is grief, because all children leave footprints on our hearts. Good morning and welcome to episode 57 of Footprints on Our Hearts. And if you live in the UK, I hope you've been enjoying a taste of summer this week. I can't say how much having this bit of warm weather and sunshine has really helped lift my mood and cheer me up. Yeah, it's been fantastic to just get outside in the garden, go for a few walks without feeling freezing cold. And I know that uh, winter and the cold weather probably isn't over yet. And now I've started planting a few things out of my garden. There's probably gonna be a hard frost to try and kill everything off, but I have been enjoying that and I hope you have too. On this week's episode of the podcast, I have an interview with Ruth Hopkins. Now, if you've been listening to the podcast since the beginning, then you may remember my first interview with Ruth, which was episode four of the podcast. So she was one of my very first guests and we had a great conversation about her experiences of baby loss and about her son, Dexter Bear, who was stillborn. And Ruth and her husband, Dave, have been through, you know, a really really tough time over the past six years while trying to um, grow their family. They've experienced, you know, a life-threatening ectopic pregnancy, um, the stillbirth of their son and a further miscarriage and secondary infertility. Um, So they've really, really had a tough ride. And I was delighted when I noticed on Ruth's Instagram post a few on Instagram wall a few months ago that they had just been approved as adoptive parents and so I got in touch with her and asked if she'd come back on the podcast and she agreed to um to talk about why they decided to explore adoption and the process they went through to become prospective adoptive parents and the kind of emotional side of that as well as as well as the kind of practical side the emotional side of that following you know all the efforts they've gone through to have their own biological children um, and ha- where they are now in terms of preparing their home for um, a new child or new children. And I hope you find this interesting and I, I really wanted to include it not only um, because, you know, I wanted to have a catch up with Ruth and, and you know, see how their views of growing their family had developed and changed over the past few years, but also because I think you know, adoption is one of these things which is shrouded in a little bit of mystery. And if it's something that you've either been considering or has even just been kind of floating around at the back of your mind, then I hope this conversation with Ruth is useful in terms of giving you more information about the process, what's involved, and and actually your kind of role as an adoptive parent versus your role as a biological parent. I found that really interesting. Um, and some of the, the sort of training Um, Ruth and Dave have been through as part of their process. So I hope you enjoy the interview and if you want more information on any of this you can um, connect with Ruth on Instagram and drop her a message. Um, She's happy to hear from people and she gives those links at the end of the episode. So without further ado I'll let you get into it. Take care.
today I'm joined on the podcast by Ruth Hopkins, mum to Dexter Bear, who was sadly stillborn in 2017. And this is actually a follow-up episode, as Ruth was one of my very first guests on the podcast over a year ago. So welcome back, Ruth, and thank you so much for agreeing to come onto the podcast again. Thank you for inviting me. It was lovely to be able to be in a different position now, a different sort of situation in our life to be able to talk to you about it. So it's exciting. Yeah. Um, And I wanted to start off, I think, you know, if you are listening and you haven't listened to Ruth's first episode, which I think was episode four, then I do recommend you go and listen to it at some point, because I have to admit, it is one of my favourite episodes, I think. (laughs) We had such a good chat. Um, But for those who haven't listened to your previous episode, could you perhaps start by just giving us a quick recap of your experiences of baby loss and infertility up to the end of 2019, which was when we last spoke? Yeah, of course. So hi, everyone. Thank you for listening. Um, So uh, I, my husband and I, uh, my husband Dave and I first decided we are going to start trying for a family in 2000, sort of the end of 2014, beginning of 2015, which feels a really long time ago now. And then when I think about it like that, I think we have gone through an awful lot. Um, so we decided to try, try for a family and we fell pregnant in July of 2015. And sadly, eight and a half weeks later, I had um, a, an ectopic pregnancy, um, which had ruptured um we didn't catch it in time much so my right fallopian tube the baby was growing in my right fallopian tube um and when the baby gets to a point where it's too big for the tube the tube ruptures um and I had it was a really that was a really traumatic time so my tube ruptured and I was left for sort of 10 days going in and out of hospital having blood tests taken nobody really being able to detect anything or tell me any answers and when I look back on it now I think if that had been the me today I'd have been able to advocate for myself so much better than I was in that first pregnancy when you're completely naive you've got no idea you haven't been touched by baby loss or anything like that um so it's left for sort of 10 days going in and out of hospital and I then collapsed because I'd been bleeding internally uh, for 10 days and my blood pressure was 70 over 40. They couldn't find a vein for me to give me a general anaesthetic um, because my veins were collapsing. It's just as even after losing your son and having a stillbirth, for me, my ectopic is still the most traumatic thing I've experienced. It was just horrendous and nothing good came out of it. So I was rushed into surgery, had my right fallopian tube and obviously the baby removed. Then I hemorrhaged, they had to go back in and have a blood transfusion, lost like three and a half pints of blood, and then ended up on intensive care for a couple of days, and then came home. And as I left hospital, a woman said, one of the doctors said to me, um, oh, you'll be back here in nine months having another baby, which, as you can imagine, you, you cling on to that hope. You think, oh, yeah, okay, you know, you know what you're talking about. Yeah, brilliant, that's fine. You know, but also I was aware that I'm a tube down now, so therefore my chances of becoming pregnant are less and my chances of having another ectopic pregnancy are higher. Um, you know, so you're so much more aware of that. It took us about a year to recover, I'd say. Um, I sort of turned a corner and then Dave kind of hit rock bottom after I'd sort of turned a corner. So we both had to process it together. 
Um, and then a year later, so 2016, we were ready to sort of try again in the summer. And then, so six months later, so January 2017, we fell pregnant um, with what we know was going to be Dexter. And I remember falling pregnant and I was absolutely terrified that I was going to have an, another ectopic pregnancy and that this time I would die. And we went for an early scan. The early pregnancy unit were amazing. We went for an early scan and there he was. And every time we went, every couple of weeks, we went until we got to 12 weeks and there he was and he was still there and he was still growing and it was just amazing. And it wasn't until our 20 week scan that I sort of really started to believe that this was going to happen for us. So we had our 20 week scan. We found out we were having a boy and it makes it so much more... I don't know, not believable, but you, you had a you had a son then and you, you, he had a pronoun, you could call him he, you could think of names and we knew we were having a boy and like, and honestly, his 20 weeks scan is one of my fondest memories because he, yeah, it was just amazing. And so then I allowed myself to believe it and if somebody had told me four weeks later that my world was just going to implode, yeah, so that's, unfortunately, that's what happened. So then I was 23 and a half weeks and... Uh, I was at work and my waters went. I didn't go into active labour. Um, I was sent to the hospital and they kind of checked him. We had checks for a couple of days and he was fine. We had on the 23 plus 6, so we were ready to get to 24 weeks and that's when they said they would intervene and possibly think about delivering him. And I had this amazing scan and she was like, oh, he's brilliant. You know, he's measuring it sort of 25 weeks. He's looking really healthy. He's looking really strong. And then the next day, there was an emergency on the labour ward. So nobody came to see us all day. And then it got to nine o'clock on our 24th week. And we had a bedside scan. And they told us that he died. And I'll never forget that moment. And Dave will never forget that moment. He can't think about it because I think that's just horrific for him. So then I had to do what I had to do and Dexter was born the next day. Beautiful, tiny little thing, but he was absolutely perfect. So he was just a very small little baby, but he was absolutely beautiful. And so we spent about 24 hours with him. Uh, we had him blessed, which was lovely. And, you know, family came to meet him. And then that, yeah, I suppose that's when your life is blown to bits is all I can you know your life as you know it has completely changed forever and there's no dressing that up I don't think is there there's no any way that you can change that other than it's just yeah it was horrendous and it is horrendous every day but you learn to live with it and you live with it I I live with it in a very different way now than I did four years ago I mean I can't believe it's his fourth it will be his fourth birthday this year it's it feels like yesterday, the day we left hospital. So that was, you know, as I'm sure lots of people that have experienced baby loss or something similar, you know, you, you know what comes after that, you know, and having to cope with a funeral and having to cope with living after that. But we did, I think, you know, we found a way of allowing Dexter to live alongside us. And I'm really proud of how we managed to do that. Um, and I know we talked a lot about that in our last podcast, didn't we? So then we... Fell pregnant in March 2018. Again, absolutely terrifying prospect. Went to the early pregnancy unit in the morning, I remember, and had a scan in the morning, and the baby was there in the heartbeat. And that evening, I miscarried. 
So you have all that, well, not joy, you don't have joy, do you? Let's be honest. But you have all that, okay, well, this, you know, here we go again. Let's give it our best shot. And we miscarried that evening. And that was the last time rate that we've been pregnant. <laughs> you know, it's three years ago, for over three years ago now. Yeah, and honestly, you've been through so much, both of you. Um, and I know, I think on the last episode, it kind of with a bit of black humour, we kind of joked that you you were a guest which ticked so many boxes because you'd experienced all these different types of loss. But of course, it's nothing, you know, there is nothing funny about that other than sometimes you, you just have to laugh because of the crapness of it all, really. Um, There's so many yeah. horrible things that have happened. And I just think, if I can't laugh at some of it, like, like I know I mentioned on our last podcast where we were given his ashes in a gift bag like after we'd had his funeral and I mean it's just so ridiculous that it becomes funny and I'm sure some people that have not been touched by it possibly think oh my goodness we're laughing at you know a baby's ashes in a gift bag but it was funny at the time it what it still makes me laugh now and it's things like that that have almost helped us being able to find some of that dark humor and we do we see you know we've experienced all these three different types of baby loss and we see we still say to each other you know Maybe we'll be fourth time lucky. And here we are three years later and we haven't been. Mm. And can I ask, because when we last left you, um, so I think we recorded the interview at the end of 2019, you were still hoping to conceive your own rainbow baby. Did you ever find out if there was a sort of cause for infertility or whether it was just simply unexplained secondary infertility? So Dave and I both had uh, tests. And everything came back as it should. And I'm sure people will say, oh, you just need to relax. You just need to do this. You just need to... You know, and I, I understand all of that, you know. And I, I took metformin um, as a way of kind of trying to force ovulation. Even though my ovulation was happening, I'd had it tested. But I think my doctor was, you know, let's try it, you know. And it just hasn't. And I think Dave and I have got to a point. Well, we did. We got to a point where... How long are we going to wait? Because I'm really aware now that this is our, it's six years this year since I had my ectopics. It's, you know, almost seven years that we've been trying for a family. There has to be an end point. I can't, I, I and he cannot keep doing it. And I, I, I feel really selfish when I'm saying it. And I think actually maybe it's time to be selfish. Maybe we have to say, do you know what? We're not going to do this to each other together any longer you know we deserve to be happy we have gone through enough and there has for us and I know lots of people don't feel like that and I'm sure some people will hear our story I think about you know why you know some people I'm sure will think well I'm not going to leave any stone unturned and I understand that but for Dave and I we've got to a point where I'm like something's got to give now because it's it's our life that we're effectively wasting just mm. waiting and hoping and I think I mean that must have been so frustrating because not having that reason because I guess if you go through the tests and something comes up obviously that's not a good thing because there's something stopping you getting pregnant but at least if you know that then you can maybe do something about it and they might say oh well if you go down IVF then you this is the route or you know if you know that I don't know, there's a problem with your eggs and you're definitely not going to be able to conceive that way, then you can maybe look at, you know, doconception or, or different things. But having no 
answers and nowhere really to go must have just been well really just leaving you both in limbo and as you say it's how long do you keep just kind of doing that and it's frustrating and I think when you think about how you conceive a baby as well I was really aware of I don't want to take the fun out of our life and our relationship I don't want to be peeing on sticks and ordering Dave around and it just do you know we really have and this has only come actually probably since we went through the adoption process that we have said to each other more than anything our marriage is the most important thing and at the end of the day we have each other and we love each other and we're happy and actually that's what I'm not willing to give up Mm, and that's oh that's so important um it really is because you go through so much um anyway so as you just touched on there a couple of months ago I did see some very exciting news on your Instagram account that you and Dave had been approved as adoptive parents um which is what we're going to talk about more today but firstly congratulations I'm sure that well a it wasn't an easy decision or an easy process to go through so you've kind of touched on this a bit, but when did you first start thinking about adoption and how did you reach the decision to explore that particular route to parenthood? So for me, just as a girl, as a young woman, I, I'd always thought about adoption and fostering. It was always something that I think I would have considered post having our own children, um, you know, when they were a bit older or whatever, it'd been something that I would have thought about. I think that's always been something in my personality. Um, and then obviously when Dave and I were together, it never really was a thing. Um, and, you know, then we had my ectopic, we lost Dexter, we had a miscarriage. And I remember saying to Dave in 2000 and I think it's 2018, um, possibly 2019, I think it was the summer of 2019, and I said to Dave, um, what about adoption? Um, because we both agreed that IVF wasn't really a route for us. Um, I don't really know why. I just think we just felt it wasn't a route. I think we were looking for a guarantee. And IVF has no guarantees. And I think we'd gone through enough and we got to a point where we needed a guarantee. Um, so, yeah, it was 2009, summer of 2019. And I said, what about it? And he said, I'd really like for us to try for another year um having our own child um because we knew that there was nothing that was stopping us doing that so I said absolutely fine that's fine and then I remember the moment we were it was lockdown one and it was May and we were sat in the garden so it was May last year now and we were sat in the garden and I said what about adoption and in that instant it was like a moment it really was and he just said yeah let's do it let's do it because I think he'd got to the point as well where our desire to have a family is so strong that actually maybe the desire to have a family is stronger than now the desire to cope with even trying to have our own child. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And as you say, there's just no guarantees, are there? Um, And you've been through so much, so much loss. And I guess it's that coming to that realization and you obviously 
you had slightly different paths to that and took slightly different timescales to kind of, I guess, accepting that your family doesn't have to be a biological family, um, that, you know, that you it can, it can form in different ways and it can still be just as precious to you and be your family. Um, but, you know, I think that's certainly something which you both had to come to that conclusion in in your own time and Dave really surprised me actually when I said it when I brought it up again and I think that was why it was a moment because we both were on the same page and it was almost this sounds really cheesy and I'm not somebody that's cheesy but it was like the stars aligned in that sense of we're both coming at it from the same point of view we both have the same same thing and I'm not joking for the first time in five or six years it was like we both took a huge exhale of breath and there was hope that we'd not had in a long time. There was, this is going to happen. There was almost a guarantee, not a guarantee because I spent the entire process thinking this isn't going to happen. They're going to say, no, we're going to get to panel and they'll say, no, you're not going to be adoptive parents. So I was convinced and I'll talk a little bit about that. But that moment of, it honestly made us just breathe out and for the first time in a long time, have some hope and think this is going to happen for us. And it was amazing. And, I, and, that, and that's when I knew that we'd made the right decision. Yeah, yeah. I'm so glad you had that. Definitely no doubts or fears there. Even though, you know, adoption is not an easy choice. It comes with its own challenges, both in terms of the process and in terms of once, you know, once you have your family, it's, you know, there are specific challenges with that. Um, but first of all, there is that challenge of being assessed and approved as potential adoptive parents, which from the little I know of the process is pretty intense. So could you tell us a bit about that process that you went through to become adoptive parents or potential adoptive parents and the journey you've been on from when you first made that decision? It was an intense journey, but it was I really enjoyed the process. It was stressful. But I really enjoyed it because I think it was getting us somewhere and it gave us a renewed focus. It gave us something different to think about. You know, it was it was really good. It was a really healthy process to go through. There's a lot of stuff. And I would say now, I'm really well educated now in the adoption process because you go into it and people say to you, oh, you're such heroes. Like, oh, that child's going to be so lucky. And there's this almost like saviour aspect of being an adoptive parent. And it's so far from that. It's unbelievable. And I and I do feel really now that I can sort of advocate for, but we're, we're the lucky ones, aren't we? Because you can't, how can an adoptive child be lucky that they are then being placed with Dave and I? Because that means that they have gone through something horrific before they get to that point. That doesn't make those children lucky at all. That makes those children need a whole lot of love and support and nurture and you know you've got to give it everything and we knew that you know we weren't going into it maybe we were going into it a little bit naively because I think now now we know so much more about it I feel that we have got a much better understanding because you do go into it I suppose you do go into it naively um, or perhaps not really understanding the process so much or not really understanding what's behind these children who have been put up for adoption, if that makes sense. Yeah, and my um, husband sort of works, you know, in that kind of field. So I've got some idea of, you know, the horrific 
backgrounds and experiences that some, you know, very young children have experienced. And even, you know, even if they're removed from that situation when they're quite young, it still does impact on them and, and impact on their on their lives. Yeah. And it's lovely that people are so kind and say, you know, you and Dave will be amazing. And, you know, these kids are really lucky. And that's really, I know it comes from a really good place. But also I want people to really understand that it's not like that for these children. You know, it's going to be a completely different bringing up of these children than it would be of our own children you know, our own biological children. And was that was that hard to kind of get your head around a bit? I think what's really hard is there's an almost default parenting, you know, aspect of life, isn't there? There's a default parent in setting, I think, and everybody, or 90% of those pe- people go to that default parenting setting. And I've learned with adoptive children and the parenting as an adoptive parent, if that makes sense, that it's completely different and you need a different set of skills and you need different types of parenting skills. You know, like we did a lot about therapeutic parenting. We did a lot about trauma. All of those, you know, and attachment and all of those things that actually as a biological parent, you probably wouldn't need to know about so much or as much because your child hasn't gone through those things. But it was really interesting to learn and I I think they do a lot to um they they are very good the trainers let's say we had some training at really giving you the kind of this is how it's going to be you know they don't they don't fluff it up they don't say that it's going to be easy it's not going to be easy and we're under no illusion that it's going to be but we feel like we have got the right skills to be able to be as best as we can for the you know do as good a job as we can for those children and I think that's really important. And from their perspective, the worst thing that could possibly happen for those children is for them to be placed with adoptive parents and for that to break down and for them to have those feelings of kind of rejection and all over again. So I can understand why they kind of put you through all that training and assessment because they need to be really sure um, that that you're up for it, to be honest, and you really know what you're letting yourselves in for. And I think, what else do they do? So you've got the training element, and I guess there's a bit of an assessment of you and Dave as parents. What What's that like? So we started, we made the decision in the May, and we registered our intro, obviously because of COVID, everything had changed. So normally you'd go to like an event um, where you sort of register your interest, and they'll talk you through the process and everything but instead you register your interest and they send you a video of that so we watched that um, and you watch that and you think right do we want to do this so we applied to do it and you have like an initial assessment which is very sort of basic but kind of talks about who you are talks about your background talks about your history talks about your job but very kind of basic but just I think as in a like is there anything that's going to come out of the closet that would potentially put it on hold or stop the process or anything so we did that and it was kind of terrifying exciting like I remember both of us like oh my goodness like we're doing this but it was exciting you know we were doing it together and it was a shared thing and it's not be me being pregnant and Dave worrying about me like we would do we were in it together so then that all went fine the manager signed us off and then you get allocated your social worker who's the one that sits stays with you sort of through the whole process then 
Um, so it all kind of, it, it kind of goes in peaks and troughs. So it's all really busy and then it stops and then it's all really busy again and then it slows down again. And there is a period of a lot of waiting and that's not because people aren't doing their jobs or anything like that. It's just the way it is. And I think part of it is they want you to be 100% sure that you want to do this. When you've gone through all the training, you've gone through all the process, are you still sure that this is what you want? And I think that kind of period of time gives you that chance to really think. Because I did say to Dave, and I remember saying it a few times, are you sure? And we were both sure, but I just thought it was important that we really need to ask ourselves and be 100% sure. Because it is not like going to the supermarket and choosing, you know, which pasta you want. or It's not like that at all. This is a lifelong decision that is going to change our lives. You know, we've got, not only have we got to be right for ourselves, but we've got to be right for these children. You know, we can't go into it kind of, you know, 90% sure and then actually get placed with some children and then we think, oh, actually, no, it's not for us. Like, we had to be sure. And I think that the period of time allowed us to do that. So you have, like, your initial assessment and then you have what's called stage one and stage two. Stage one is very kind of formal. It's lots of paperwork, passports, driving licences, all the, like, references, all this kind of paperwork stuff, verifying who you are, getting references, getting references from work. Because we were both teachers, we needed references of anybody we'd ever been with with children. So there was like going right back all of our jobs that we'd gone through and everything. And that was all fine. And then you go into stage two and stage two is the really intense adoption stuff, I would say. We had to fill in what's called family forms and they were about 10,000 words by the end of it. And they were like, 30 pages each so we, we didn't do it together you had to do them separately so there's one for me and one for Dave and it goes through everything like from the day you were born to where you are now and in finite detail your parents how they got married where they got married what what jobs did they do you know it goes through even to like you know how are you still going to make time for each other right through to finite detail of everything and that was really intense I remember that it took weeks and weeks to do it Um, and I had to kind of go to it and come away and go to it and come away so all of that and but all of that kind of goes to the social workers and they pull it all apart and that's how they we then from that paperwork we had like a set of eight assessment interviews I had one on my own Dave had one on his own and then we both had like six sessions together where they pull apart the things that you've said and they not interrogate you, but they really check because they've got to be sure as well. Um, So there was that. And then we had training days as well with other prospective adopters and they were three really intense days. And I came away and was like, oh, I need to go to bed. Like they were really intense and they're where you're looking at reasons why children are, in, you know, put up for adoption the process of the adoption, work on birth families, work on attachment, uh, trauma, therapeutic parenting, all of those things as well. And then all of that sort of collates into a big prospective adoptive report, um, which then goes to panel. Um, We have to have medicals as well, which so I was like, because my BMI is higher, I was just like, well, I was convinced. I was like, well, 
you've got high BMI, they're going to say, no, you're too fat to be a parent. Any, I could, I could have found any reason why they were going to say no. And I think through my counselling that I've had, that kind of has helped me. I, I know why. And it was because of our previous experience. Experiences showed Dave and I, past experiences showed Dave and I, that we're not going to be parents because it hasn't worked out. So why would this work out? You know, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes complete sense. And did you find that the process of going through all this kind of stirred up your feelings of grief around Dexter and the other babies that you lost? Or did it feel like a kind of positive experience moving forward from those experiences? I feel like, because they obviously were worried, not worried, but they had to explore how Dave and I were coping with our grief um, and whether we were, not over Dexter, that's the wrong word. They would probably think about it like that. But were we in a position where we were living our life with Dexter alongside us, but also in a mental, emotional, physical capacity of coping with it from day to day. But equally, these things were also not good things, but like because Dave and I have got an understanding of grief and trauma and anxiety that lots of these children who are up for adoption have, it's almost, I don't mean it's seen as a good thing, but we have experience of those things so therefore we would have more empathy with those children you know because we understand it because we've been there and you know in different situations but we've got an understanding of grief we've got an understanding of anxiety and we can use that almost as a positive so that was you know seen as a good thing and to be able to do that and I don't know about you but I because I've done a fair bit of kind of reading up and listening about grief and sort of mental health after kind of baby loss and I guess the work that you did as part of the adoption process and looking at this and the work that you've done sort of during your counselling for me when I've done that it's helped me understand my emotions and my grief a bit more and therefore makes you maybe better able to deal with it when those feelings come up which they inevitably will because you know Dexter's always going to be part of your lives and there are always going to be points where those feelings of grief are more intense than others and it's I guess it's how you learn to cope with those and the feelings that that come up particularly once you have other children in your life. Yeah and I think as well it's I, I know what I think I know what my trigger points are now so I know when his birthday you know obviously I know when his birthday is coming up or I know when I've got certain memorial times or days that are important my, the, my grief is at his worst when I'm caught off guard I like to prepare myself you know I know when his birthday is coming so that you know you can prepare yourself if I'm caught off guard that's when my grief's at my worst but I'm aware of that and I you know I can use that to sort of help me and my counselling, I didn't go for counselling until the end of 2019. It was November 2019. Because I just, after Dexter died, I think everybody thinks, I'll oh, go for counselling, it'll help. Go for counselling, I'll sort you out. And actually what saved me after Dexter died was Instagram. It really was. Having a community of people. When I sort of found the baby loss community, having people that just could say, oh, I feel like that. I understand that. I know that. Or the... People would put posts and think, oh my goodness, that's me. I'm not losing my mind. Like, that's what I needed in that moment. That was the thing that saved me, just having other people that got it. 
And I think I was really worried at first that with counselling, unless you've gone through what I've gone through, yes, you might be able to give me tools to cope with things, but you might not get it in how I need you to understand it, If you know. And so I didn't need counselling at the time and it wasn't until November 2019 I was having a difficult time in my job um and I had had the comp my confidence knocked out of me that I was like I need some help now because I'm losing roof I'm losing the the core of me and it wasn't related to my grief at all it was more to do with me and honestly it has been I'm so glad I did it and it was the right time and I'm still doing it now you know, and I've been doing it for a year and a half and it has been hard. And even now I can only just start to see green shoots and I probably will have counselling forever because I just think it's a really good service to have just to talk about yourself as well. Like I've learned so much about myself that I would recommend it to anyone. It's been one of the best things I've ever done. And was that then a specific baby loss counselling or was it a more general... Um, kind of therapy approach so it was general and it was private I think I decided I mean I had spoken to my doctor and she said I know this is awful Ruth but she was like you're going to be better going private because the NHS is just sinking with pressure particularly with mental health and I mean and that's awful and I feel really lucky that Dave and I were in a position financially to be able to do that and there's so many people out there that aren't and that's all you know that's just it's horrendous isn't it because I feel really grateful that we've been able to do it and it's been such a good process and the counsellor I found I count my lucky stars because she knows me she knows me better than I know myself sometimes she has really got and I, and I know that's an important thing to get the counsellor that is on your wavelength and she gets me completely and has brought the old roof back you know my confidence as a teacher now I honestly had it been knocked horrifically and I don't feel like that anymore I know I'm a good teacher and I can say it now and I couldn't I wasn't didn't used to be able to say it at all I'd be like oh well I think I am she was like you really think you are and now I can say it and I believe it but you know that's been it's taken a year and a half just for something like that mm. and so you went through this tough journey of pretty much having to bear your soul to strangers and have them dig into every nook and cranny of your life. How did it then feel when you were told that you'd been approved? So the we had the report written and everything and they sent the report to us. So this was, ooh, it was just before Christmas because the report was going to panel on Christmas Eve because I think they need it like a couple of weeks before panel. So... Everything that we've done, all the training, all the interviews, all the assessments, the medicals, everything gets put together in this report that is for both of us, uh, called a PAR, P-A-R, Prospective Adoptive Report. And it was all put together and they sent it to us. And even and when I read it, I couldn't read mine. I couldn't read my bits. I could only read Dave's bits because I couldn't bear to read what people were saying about me. couldn't bear it because I was so worried that they would say something negative or that I'd read honestly it terrified me and my therapist said please go and read it and take in the things that they are saying please go and take those things in you know and it was that was a really helpful process so we read through it all it was you know really lovely very honest I think Dave and I are sometimes too honest to a to a fault sometimes but you know we were and I think honesty is the thing that's going to you know I can't hide things we had to you know be truthful and so 
it got it was fine we sent it back and then it went to panel and then our panel was on January the 11th and I was absolutely terrified absolutely terrified nothing prepares you for your for it and everybody was going you'll be absolutely fine you'll be fine you'll be fine and in my head I had that little gremlin saying no they're gonna say no they're gonna say no um I was convinced and we were shaking both of us beforehand um and what was really weird that morning and it sounds odd now so we'd we had agreed with our counsellor um not our counsellor with our social worker that we were going to be recommended for a girl because of what's happened with Dexter I think she just said I think initially a girl just makes it easier for everybody you know she was like I don't want you guys to be hit with a wave of secondary grief and secondary trauma and having a boy who is growing up not like Dexter is might be difficult for you so we all agreed you know and that was a really nice thing as well because we were again like thinking oh we're gonna have a daughter you know we're gonna have a girl that was lovely and that morning looked out the window and there was a pink balloon in our garden now I you know I know baby lost parents, you know, you do, you have signs, don't you? Feathers, rainbows, everything. And that pink balloon, honestly, I was like, that's got to be a sign. Like, and I don't really believe in stuff like that. And that balloon's come from God knows where, you know. But in January, middle of January, it's freezing. And there was a pink balloon that morning in the garden. And I just was like, wow. And I took a bit, we kept it. I was like, go and get it out the garden. Let's keep it. <laughs> and so we sat down to the panel and there was like nine of them, a lot of people sat, and just me and Dave there, um, so two social workers, another couple of social workers, and then like five kind of neutral people who either had been adopted themselves, or were adoptive parents, or had worked in social care, or anything like that, and I started crying straight <laughs> straight away it was like I'm really sorry I'm crying they were like it's fine don't worry and it do you know it was such a wonderful process I remember it so fondly they were so kind and I was completely overwhelmed and then after the you know we were there with them for sort of half an hour and they sort of asked questions but they all said at the end it was really hard to find questions to ask you because your report was so well written and we've really got a sense of the both of you so they were almost like non-questions some of them because you know like one of the questions are like what are you both looking forward to you know it just it was lovely and then ended the session and then about half an hour later we got the phone call to say that they'd approved us and I just I remember in that moment and I talked to my therapist about it afterwards I just was like Ruth you need to believe in yourself more and it was and that for me has been a really important message because I think I think you do when you lose your baby or babies, it does knock your confidence, it does kind of, you lose a lack of belief in yourself because, look, you know, you haven't been able to have a family, you haven't been able to have your own child and it just was a really powerful moment for me to just think, come on, believe in yourself, you can do it and you proved it and yeah, it was amazing. I was going to ask, my next question was going to be in terms of how they kind of match you with children. So I guess from what you said, as part of that report, you kind of have those discussions in advance in terms of, I guess, what sort of age of child or children you'd want to adopt. So did that all go into the report 
to the panel. And then what happens after that? So the social worker, through discussion with Dave and I, makes a recommendation of what she thinks would be the right fit for us. And then the the adoption panel kind of approve that recommendation. Um, so we have been approved for a girl under the age of one or two siblings under the age of two. Because again, and we went into this thinking, we'll adopt one and then we'll try for our own because we haven't ruled out having our own child. There's no reason why, as far as we're concerned. We haven't ruled out having our own. Or we'd adopt again um, if that didn't happen. And then all of a sudden, I don't really know, like we were convinced we wouldn't want siblings. And then we did some sibling training and we sort of thought about it and we talked about it and we were like, but actually, what if it doesn't work out for us? Okay, so what if we don't have our own? So say we adopt a little girl and we don't go on to have our own child and then we decide to adopt again. When we thought about it, we thought, but we could potentially be adopting two children from two different families. That's two different sets of trauma, two different sets of history. That's all, That's potentially going to be a lot more difficult for us and these two children. And we thought siblings have got a natural, unique bond. They're going to come together. They have each other. They have the same history. They have the same story. They potentially might settle better together. And it also means for Dave and I, if we never go on to have our own family, we've got two children that are natural siblings. And it it really surprised us because we'd really gone in thinking, no, we'd just adopt one. And actually, we really came around to the idea of having siblings more so than not. But we were very sure about the age of siblings. So we both said we need two under two. I mean, which feels like a baptism of fire. However, you know, we've got to take a leap of faith, haven't we? And we sort of ideally would want a kind of baby and maybe an 18-month-old or whatever. There's something that's called an early placement plan that, that you can go through that Dave and I decided not to and we all agreed that an early placement plan wasn't for us. And an early placement plan is where you are given a baby as soon as that baby's born, you know, that's it's taken from the birth mother straight away. But the social workers then spend a lot of time finding somebody within the birth mother's family to have the child. So it could be that Dave and I would have this child for three, four months and then that child goes. And I think we all agreed we have gone through enough that that would be another significant loss and it would be really difficult. So we decided we would rather adopt children who are ready to be adopted and there's no kind of chance of that not happening. Yeah, and I think, because um, I understand that sort of adoption is, is pretty much a last resort, actually, when it comes to looking at children. And they do, you know, look at any way, firstly, any way the parents can be supported to keep those kids and then the sort of more immediate family. And if there's anyone there willing to take them over. So they keep those connections, I guess, with the birth parents. So when you were pregnant with Dexter, you decorated his nursery, you got everything ready for him before he died, and his room has stayed like that pretty much for four years. How hard was it to make the changes you needed to make to make that room ready for its new occupants? Yeah, initially it was really, really challenging, and it was like we were 
not replacing him, but pushing him aside is how I felt. And I also was really aware. So he still had his clothes in his drawer and it was decorated for him. And my mum had loads of stuff at her house. So the day Dexter had died, she'd come home and sort of emptied our house as much as she could, um, apart from his room. So she had loads of stuff at her house. And I was really aware now, because we were on this new kind of path, that we were going to have to tear that band-aid off, that we were going to have to, at some point, de-Dexter and not change his room. It just needed to take on a new identity, you know, and I kind of, had we have had another child, you know, or had we have had our own child after Dexter, we'd have had to do that anyway. I think it just, it was hard, but it was okay, and so we took, we went to my mum's, I remember we got all this stuff, we brought it back, and I was like, oh my goodness, there was so much stuff, and things that I'd forgotten we bought and everything and we took all of his clothes out and I think because I'd started thinking about it I'm the sort of person where I need to do it like now I've said that we're going to we need to do this we need to do it because I can't leave it because otherwise I would just be thinking about it all the time and I was like let's just do it so we took all of his clothes out of the room and you know we there were some things that we said you know anything that's probably nine months or above if we had any things like that we could keep you know, because it might be that the adoptive children, child could use those. Um, you know, we boxed it all up and it's all there. We haven't got rid of anything. It's all there. But it was an intense feeling of guilt almost of, oh, look at us. We're moving on. We're pushing you aside. And I know that that's not true. This was going to have to happen anyway. Um, it, but it felt quite intense. But, you know, we did it and I also feel like the social workers, I was really aware that when the social workers came, they only did one visit here um, because of COVID. But I didn't want them to think that our house was shrine-like to Dexter, even though it's not, and I know it's not. Somebody from the outside world looking in might think, oh, you're not over him, or there's this, or there's that, or the other. And so we, you know, we did have to de-Dexter, but it was okay, and I'm all right with it, and you know, after the pa- after panel and we'd gone through it, the first weekend after we'd gone through panel, we then started making changes to the room and it was really exciting because it was, we haven't done this in a long time and you're trying to balance that guilt of Dexter and almost de-Dextering, even though I know that we're not, you know. and But it was really nice to think, oh, somebody is going to live in this room that was created for Dexter, that was made for Dexter, but actually, because I remember when he died, lots of people were like, oh, you're going to redecorate his room. And I just thought, but why? Why would I redecorate his room? Nobody's lived in it. And we did it with such love and such joy and such happiness that actually, why would we? I want somebody to enjoy that room. And although it's not going to be Dexter, it's going to be somebody that is going to get joy out of it and happiness out of it. And I think that was the kind of pull in the end that kept us going that was the thing that helped us kind of manage through that room but I remember finding the hardest thing was I need to stop calling it Dexter's room because and that was I think that was a real challenge because I was like I don't know what to call it I don't want to call it the nursery I found that really hard taking it from Dexter's room to the nursery and sometimes I still call it his room because at the moment, even though it's not now the same room, it is the same room, but it's slightly different. Until we have a name or somebody that's going to be there, 
it just is still his room even though it's not his room yeah I totally understand that because we I mean we hadn't even decorated a nursery for Sky before she died because we were not very organized <laughs> um so we'd only just started to clear that room. And then when I was pregnant with Rowan, we decorated it as, as a kind of nursery. But all the way through my pregnancy, my husband referred to it as Sky's room. He didn't even refer to it as the nursery. It was always Sky's room. And sometimes he'd catch himself and go, oh, you know, maybe we need to call it something else now. And, you know, even after Rowan was born, we, we still don't really call it Rowan's room that much it's, it's kind of the nursery at the moment um but yeah so I, I totally understand that and you know you guys have obviously had that for so long and had such a strong connection with uh, with that room to Dexter but you know I'm sure I'm sure that will come over time and let's face it if you occasionally slip up and call it Dexter's room it's not the end of the world is it because he's still you know very much part of your family um and I was wondering, actually, have you given any thought as to how and when you'll introduce Dexter and the concept of Dexter to his um, little sibling or siblings, and um, particularly given that they're coming from this uh, sort of adoptive situation? So it's a, maybe a slightly different situation to if you were bringing someone up for literally from birth. Yeah, and I've had to settle with that, I think, because it's not going to... Be- because these children are going to come already with trauma, I don't want to make it a more complicated or complex situation for them. And that, again, has been a challenge for us because, you know, if we had had our biological child, it would never have not been anything that was just a natural conversation of, this is your older brother. But what we have decided that we would do is just not introduce the concept of Dexter but like we've got his bench in a park we'll go to his bench and we'll sit on his bench doesn't mean I have to say that this is Dexter's bench or anything like that but it makes me know that we're there and we're with him and we're remembering him you know and there's a couple of photos up of him and around the house and I think maybe then when the child would say who is this or what's this that would be a natural opportunity but I don't want it to be this thing that I am forcing down their throats to remember this brother of theirs that actually it feels a lot more complex and I'm all right with that I understand why it would feel like that and I think I don't want to make it any more confusing or complicated for children who are already coming in quite a complex situation um so I think we've had to settle with that and that's all right and you know I like that we got his bench because it means we can go there and we can be there and Dave and I know that we're there and we know that we're with Dexter and you know eventually one day those children will understand who Dexter was for us or is for us you know but yeah that again it it does raise quite complex thoughts and feelings but I've gone through the process of those things and sort of settled myself with it you know We'll have to think about his birthday when it, you know, it might, it won't, probably won't be this year now, but next year possibly with how we go about that, you know, whether Dave and I do something ourselves for the first couple of years or whether we just do a birthday cake. You know, I don't know. It's, we'll, we'll find what's best and what works for us all. And mm. um, yeah, I'm confident you, you guys will work it out. And I really am so happy for you both and I hope you can welcome the newest member of the Hopkins family into your home soon this is the other thing like and they said like I thought the initial process was intense 
and they kept saying the next bit is the worst bit because you know like the next day you're like yes they're gonna find somebody and it's just not like that like we went through the panel in January the 11th and um we haven't really had anything um there's been a couple of things and we've looked at a couple of profiles and stuff and that's been really good because you know we've looked at profiles and thought right we know what kind of things we're looking for or what we would you know explore more and that kind of thing um but also I just think we've waited enough and I am just trusting in the process because it's been a long enough wait what is a few more months really in the reality and I don't want to rush into a decision because we think, oh, we've been waiting for three months. Oh, we'll just take those children and it not be the right fit because we, it has to be right for us and it has to be more importantly right for them. And I don't want to rush into anything. We, Dave believes, and I believe him, that we will know. We will know the profile that we get and we will know that it's the right one. Um, so, yeah, we're just trusting the process. And, you know, we've had a couple of things, but because of where we live, they don't match children in the same place because we live in quite a small city. And I, that's a good thing, you know. So there was, like, a nice match for us, but it was in the same city that we live in, so that has to go to somebody, you know, different outside of the location. So I I'm firmly believe it will happen. It's just, how long is a piece of string? Yeah, the waiting such a hard part. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm afraid we are out of time. But thank you so much for sharing your story with it, Ruth. I feel, I feel much better informed. And I hope the people listening who may have, you know, thought about the idea of adoption or been a bit intimidated by it or sort of wanted to know more, I'm sure they'll benefit from, from hearing your story. Would you just like to finish by telling people where they can find you online? Uh, yeah, of course. So I am on Instagram um, at Ruth and Her Bear. And I did start a private well, secretive adoption Instagram page that's not secret anymore called Born From The Heart. So that sort of talks through the process more in detail. So if you wanted, if you were interested in the process, have a look over there because it tells you all the things that we've gone through. Um, and if you've got any questions, I did do a question and answer on Instagram not long ago, actually, and I was absolutely swamped with adoption questions, which was really lovely. And clearly there's an interest out there. So there's, I saved that on my highlights. So if anybody wanted to read through those, they're more than welcome to. Welcome to send me a message or anything. Um, but thank you for having me again. I feel like I might be back in a year's time telling you about the adoptive children. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ruth. Thank you for listening to this episode of Footprints on Our Hearts. Please help me break the silence around baby loss by sharing the podcast with your friends and leaving a review on iTunes. You can follow me on Instagram at Footprints on Our Hearts and Twitter at Sky's Footprints. For detailed show notes and to support the podcast and help me raise money for Tommies, please visit our website, footprintsonourhearts.com. <laughs>